This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'm Newman Burdett, Head of Centre for International Comparisons at NFER. I'm Rebecca Wheater, Research Manager in the Centre for International Comparisons at NFER. Thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Assessment podcast series here today. We're looking at the title of your seminar, What Can We Believe About International Surveys? Can we begin with you, Newman, by telling us the history history of international surveys. How we're using them today compared to how we use them in the past. Why we need to measure. I don't think really we've changed the way we use them. I think it's that because they have a much higher international focus, they've become much more newsworthy. Especially now that we have these rankings where people take it almost as a sort of competitive either advantage or some way that we should be comparing ourselves in a very conflicted way, I think, with other countries rather than actually using them more for reflection on how we should improve and what we need to improve. So I, I think it's more the, the profile of them has increased, not necessarily the, what we're doing with them or how we're using them. So we've always measured, but the international comparisons are playing bigger in terms of the domestic news, how the politicians use them, and then that reflects back onto schools. Very much so, I think. They are also sometimes being used deliberately to drive educational agendas, because by having an external point and being able to say, we've gone up or we've gone down, you know, you can actually sit there and say, this is good or this is bad and then ignore the realities of what is actually happening in the classroom, what's happening educationally. So they can provide a very strong impetus that plays very well, I think, to the common man. Well, let's begin by your headline in the Telegraph, then your headline in The Guardian. Can you explain it to our listeners? Well, it's when the survey results were produced, they were portrayed as being disastrous and England crashing down and failure and things getting worse. And actually, the evidence didn't show that at all. It really just showed that we'd plateau. But that doesn't really make a good news story. It's more that other countries had improved more than us, and so we fell down the rankings. But the rankings are not that meaningful. And then The Guardian, equally, as opposed to The Telegraph, used another survey to say that we should be lifting people from the lower ends of education because then our international rankings will improve. Yes, I actually agree with them on that because a lot of the countries that have improved have lifted the lower rankings and concentrated on the lower end. In that quote, what I was really objecting to was the fact that you could just do that by social mixing, whereas actually the evidence doesn't show or doesn't explain that that that's the only way to do it. So they get misused. Yes, people sort of tend to have, this is my answer, and then look for the solution rather than actually sort of looking at the data dispassionately and saying, well, what does this really tell us? how can we actually improve from this rather than it becoming something that supports ideology. Rebecca, if we cross over to you now, tell us a little bit about your ESA, Tim's, Pearl's surveys. Why are these surveys the ones that are important? Well, they're really the only ones that exist in terms of measuring achievement and taking account of context internationally. What does the PISA survey do? Well, it measures 15-year-olds readiness for adult life in OECD and non-OECD countries. Around 69 countries took part in 2009. And it attempts to do this robustly because countries have to meet lots and lots of standard criteria in order for their results to be included. So the sampling, meeting school and student participation rates and those sorts of things. If we now move on to the TIMS. So TIMS, on the other hand, is more a measure of curriculum and a measure of students' mastery in science and maths rather than the PISA survey, which is more their readiness for adult life, which are the overall aims of those two surveys. Well, let's delve a bit deeper into your PISA survey. Give us the framework, the background. You talked about rigour. How do you go about this survey? 
So the frameworks are developed internationally by a team of experts and countries are able to feed into the development of the framework, the development of the items to ensure that they are not culturally biased as far as can be possible. To make sure we meet all the international standards, we make sure that we sample and include every school in the country, that only once we've done that do we remove schools who maybe wouldn't be able to participate, just to ensure that it's transparent, and this is something which every country that participates needs to do. When it comes down to modifying the instruments, which has to be done, either translation or adaptations, each translation has to be approved by the International Consortium in order for the survey to be used as you'd like to use it in the UK or in any other country around the world. When it comes to marking the assessments, countries have to meet both internal reliability and also between country reliabilities so that's either consistency within that own country or it's consistency in terms of leniency by the internationally taking for instance questions from each country and remarking and checking that each country is marking in the same way. And rigour that was an important word. So in order that all these standards have to be met and have been produced so that it is run in the same way in each country as far as is possible. Do you object at all, Newman, to how perhaps the results of the PISA survey are translated into the media or used by politicians? The simple answer to that is yes, because often they just take a very simplistic view. And the surveys provide a huge amount of very rich data and a lot of information. Whereas when it gets reported in the media, they're looking for a hook or something. They want to either make a point that it's getting worse or getting better. And actually, the data usually is much more complicated than that. They just take a very complex data set and convert it into a meaningless number, sort of better or worse, fail, you know, whatever. You called it a simplistic conclusion. Yes, it's very much taking something that you need to really analyse and put into context and then just drawing very simplistic conclusions that are probably not supported by the data. Well, well, let's begin at the basics, because you said what surveys are for, so they can extend and, and, if you like, enrich the national picture. Let's look at the good side of surveys. Why do we need surveys? What the surveys really are about allowing us to hold up a mirror to what we're doing educationally and see what we're doing, how we're doing it, seeing what the attitudes are and how all those complex bits interact. But also then allow us to look at other countries and see how their interventions have worked, what they're doing well, what might be transferable to us. Not just about simple policy borrowing, but actually looking at the wider context and using it really to guide where we want to be looking and then making an informed judgment from that, not being an end in itself. So instead of being an end in itself or or a tool to which to bash schools, teachers, another political party, it, it can enrich learning because we know the good teaching practices that we want to borrow for the future for our students. Very much so. And we can also look, you know, Poland is very much in the news in terms of the surveys because they've had a very well thought out way of addressing their lower ability end and that seems to have improved achievement. That might be something we want to look at here just in terms of how we deal with the fact that England is a very diverse country and how we actually deal with that diversity and looking at for sort of clues from other countries of how we can not just necessarily improve the top end but actually make the bottom end and the whole of the education system better. And Tim Oates introducing both of you to the seminar today spoke about how statistics can be misused. He used Japan as an example. People say, well, it has a good education system with good results, but high suicide rates. And then when you actually look to the, to the rankings, actually, it's very low in the, in the suicide rates of late teenagers. So there are myths. 
and, and he mentioned myths quite a lot. These educational myths come about because people misquote the surveys. There are lots of myths out there. And I mean, for example, this is a particular bugbear of Tim's, but I agree with him, is that Finland is often held up as an example because it does very well. But the context there is so completely different. The way the education system works, the size of the country, all of these things you have to take into account. And it's not enough to just sit there and say we know what's happening there you have to go back and actually look what is happening see what actually is happening in the classrooms look where how the policy has changed and really dig beyond it because people assume they know about these education systems but education systems are very complex there's a huge amount of variety even just the uk education system i doubt there's anyone who fully understands the uk education system and then to sit there and try and pick from different contexts is very difficult Rebecca, do you agree that we have to know how to use surveys and to use them in context, for instance, your your own beta survey, rather than out of context? Yes, absolutely. And one of the problems with the surveys is that the data is so easily accessible, but it's very difficult to understand what you're meant to do with it. Yeah, so it is incredibly important. And and how would you use your survey to to judge national standards, to look at, you know, national comparisons? What do you think is a good use of of surveys? Well, I think it's very useful to look at yourselves and how you're doing now and how you did in the past. So currently in so in PISA and in TIMS, as Newman said, we we have stayed still while other countries have overtaken us. So it's not bad news, but also it's not terribly good news if other countries are improving at the same time. So we should be looking at ourselves. And you weight cultural biases as well, don't you? I mean, you can look at the cultural bias within the education systems that, that might distort the surveys. Yeah, and that's why really your own data is so important because you know, you, you know your own biases <laughs> compared to other countries. But the surveys are constantly evolving and working to overcome biases, for instance, developing new types of questions and... The way that the questions are developed means that every country has input into their final form in some way. And so that's how we try and overcome those biases. Well, what if we just come back to you, Newman? Do you use some very strong phrases about people using international surveys and rankings to prove an educational point. You said they were very high stakes, but they weren't a yellow pages. My education system is bigger than yours. That's a very bold statement to make, isn't it, in terms of the use of international surveys? Well, they were never intended to be used in that way. They, they were always intended for reflection within context, but using the experiences outside, they're not really intended as sort of, you know, a high-stakes ranking system saying that we are number one or we are number six. They're not like an international Olympics. They are more about reflection and improvement and how we use the information to make valid policy decisions. Yes, the analogy is they are not the Olympics. They're not some competition that, you know, you get a gold prize if you come number one. It's more about the needs of ourselves in the UK, what we want to achieve through our education system. It's not whether we want to become another country or just borrow from another country. We have different sets of needs and our society has different needs and it's really how we meet the needs of our own society. And Rebecca, just finally, the questions that you were asked at the end, there was a lot of interest in this particular seminar, but people talked about teaching to the test. If you have tests, then you know the schools want to be higher up in the league tables. The countries might want to be higher up in the league tables for political purposes. Do you think that overall that perhaps the tests are a good thing or or do they distort education systems in, in terms of the rankings that come out of the tests? Well, so there are examples of countries which have changed their education systems because of PISA results, but it's really important that countries think about what it is that they think is important for their students to do and it's not necessarily exactly the same as what will also get you 
good scores in the international assessments. So, so overall, the international league tables can be used for good. You said that some countries do improve their education system when they see their rankings. Yes, but just using the rankings on their own is too crude a measure, really, and that's why it's much more important to carry on with the secondary analysis and dig deep into the data to find out more. Well, Newman, perhaps if we could end on your analogy and perhaps one of your last slides about the international league tables being like a, a light post. They're illuminating, but they don't necessarily show you the way. Well, actually, yes, they should be used for illumination and not for support. And I think that's the really powerful thing about it, because there is such huge and rich data in there that, if it's used well, can really answer very important educational questions. It's more about deciding what the questions we want to answer are and then how we should ask them and making sure we get groups, not just of educationalists, but possibly economists, and make the best use of all the data and really use it to inform policy in a very educated and foresightly way. So it's up to the educationalists and seminars like today to provide the safety valve so that people don't distort what the international labels are saying. Yes, I, th I think it's making sure that when we're discussing this, we understand what we mean by this and that we can recognise it when people are misusing them or misquoting them. Dr Newman Burdett and Rebecca Wheater, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Assessment podcast series here today, looking at what we can believe about international surveys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.